Welcome to the Thoughtful Gamer Podcast, episode number 47. As always, my name is Mark, and here with me today is the designer of what I'm going to be committing to calling the hot game of early 2019 wingspan that designer is elizabeth hargrave thank you for being on the podcast thanks for having me we've had a a small technical difficulty that hopefully will not be noticed but although now everyone listening knows about it just just ignore i said this we're doing this conversation for the very first time (laughs) i promise you (laughs) uh so Elizabeth, you've you've got this game uh, Wingspan that is I'm looking at it now is currently sixth on the BGG hotness. It was sitting at first place for a very long time, and it is your first published design, from what I can tell. That's got to be pretty exciting. Yeah, it's been a wild ride. Yeah, and and to to work with someone like Stonemaier Games is probably really nice. They've had a number of high quality releases and and seem to excite people whenever they have a new game that comes out. Yeah, it's been great from the marketing side and also just the development getting to actually work with Jamie getting the the game ready to go was a great experience. Is he as relentlessly productive and upbeat as he seems? <laughs> yes, I think so. <laughs> it's yeah. I don't know how he is able to do so much as like a one man operation and like blog every day and do all this other stuff. It, I'm quite jealous of it, but yeah, uh, I definitely get a fair number of late night emails. I think part of the secret <laughs> of how he gets so much done is that he puts in crazy hours. Yeah, he probably doesn't need to sleep. I have a, I have a friend <laughs> like that from college who's super productive, and he sleeps like three hours a night, and I have no idea how he does it. It's got to catch up with you. At some point, you'd think. Anyways, Wingspan, which I'm very excited to talk about because it's about birds, and I love birds. And apparently, this game is getting other people excited about birds for the very first time, which is awesome. Yeah, I think it's, I've seen stories of it working in both directions. Uh, so people are teaching it to their birder friends who are non-gamers. And I've definitely heard from gamers who have gone out birding for the first time since Wingspan came out. So that's that's that fun is... for me in both directions. It's just like the intersection of two of my big hobbies. So it's super fun. Yeah, I don't, I don't go out birding much anymore. But as a kid, I certainly did. And I remember, huh. for some reason, I just got attached to birds when I was a kid, and I found them very cool. And then I got these like field guides, and we go out and uh, on field trips and stuff because I was homeschooled, and so oh, a lot yeah. of the times we go out and find new birds to look at in the middle of California, which was very, very fun. And then now that I moved to the East Coast, I get to see all kinds of different birds which is neat although i haven't gone out specifically for that but spring migrations uh, coming up mm-hmm, yeah <laughs> and then like well like like there's some birds that are just iconic but they're just not in california so like yeah when i moved here you know one summer i look outside and there's a couple of cardinals out there i was like whoa i've never seen a cardinal before <laughs> in yep. person uh yep. i forgot we, there we got visited by a friend from seattle and he had that same reaction of like, cardinals were the most amazing bird to him which they are right like if you had so vivid. never seen one before it's completely bright red it's amazing but if you see them every day in your backyard they're just a dime a dozen yeah yeah and then yeah the, the certain birds i guess i don't see at all anymore like scrub jays are mm. not a whole lot of magpies back here i guess mm-hmm. those used to be the most common you know out, out in the front lawn 
Mm-hmm. Yeah, Cardinals are very cool, especially since I'm also a Cardinals baseball fan. So, <laughs> so I, I assume you've you have enjoyed bird watching, birding uh, for a while, and from a a distant memory of a previous conversation that may or may not have happened ten minutes ago, <laughs> I know that you 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 designed the game with birds in mind from the very beginning. It wasn't a mechanics first design; it was definitely about going to be about birds from the beginning, right? Yes, and that's been true so far of all the games that I have designed, that the theme occurs to me first, and then I sort of try and work through what mechanics might help tell the story that is so interesting to me about that theme. What about birds were you trying to capture with Wingspan? Because I haven't, unfortunately, gotten a chance to play it yet, but I knew I do know a little bit about the game. But, but tell me, is it more about the process of what it's like to go through the life cycle of a bird? Is it about observing birds? What What is kind of the feeling you're trying to get from the game? I mean, the initial inspiration was kind of actually a conversation with I, I had with some friends of mine talking about how we play all these games that have relatively dry economic themes and, you know, why aren't there any games about things that we're interested in? But then also thinking about there are sort of economic systems in nature, right? Like, And so it started with, okay, different birds eat different types of food and live in different habitats and sort of if resources are scarce, what would it look like to have a, a game where the resources are bugs and berries and seeds and things that birds eat instead of wood and ore and that kind of stuff. Yeah, and you'd think that this would come up more often with, you said, resource games, because if you think about kind of very basic economics, I mean, that's what animals are doing. They're just trying to go point A to B, which is eat and find ways to survive, which is kind of the most basic level of economic management, even though they're not doing higher level thinking, they are still going through the process of having priorities and trying to accomplish those goals. Yeah. So that was kind of the jumping off point. And then a lot of the engine building aspect of it kind of came later because just moving resources around with no build to it isn't as interesting as building an engine. Mm Mm-hmm. At what point did you? Well, let's start with with some with even more basic for people who haven't got a chance to play or or look at the game at all. How does Wingspan play? What's kind of the basic systems? Mm-hmm. So you have a player mat that you get that has four different actions on it, and you you're going to take one of those actions on each turn. You can draw bird cards. You can gain food. You can lay eggs, and eggs are basically points, or you can play a bird, and to play a bird you obviously have to have gotten some cards and gotten some food from those other actions, although you start with a little bit. And then the engine building part of it is that as you get birds out on your mat, you're building your engine in two different ways. So as you have a bird sort of slotted under one of those actions, which correspond with the habitats that the birds can live in, right? So wetlands birds move you up on your card drawing track, for example. Once you have another bird in your wetland, you actually automatically are going to be drawing more cards on your turn. Plus, every time you activate that habitat to draw cards, 
you're also going to be activating the birds that are already there, which may have powers on them that make you even better at drawing cards. Or maybe they have powers on them that let you do other things that will get you points. Oh, interesting. So yeah. it kind of cascades down? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Okay. So you're going back and interacting with the birds that you've played before each time that you take an action. Okay, interesting. And I assume there's there's kind of trade-offs in terms of playing a card that's very good for you now but doesn't have as powerful of a cascade effect. Uh, yeah, there are definitely versa. some that are really strong if you play them early in the game but not late in the game and vice versa. There are some that are just really high points but they don't have an action on them. It's a real mix. Mm-hmm. And how long have you been working on this game? I started in about 2014 and off and on for a little while. And then I pitched it to Stonemeyer in the summer of 2016 at Gen Con. And then we worked on it up until the spring of 2018, sort of going back and forth on different development things around the game. I pitched it with... I think under, it had under 100 birds when I pitched it. And one of the things that Jamie pushed for was to make the deck much bigger. So the the final deck of cards has 170 birds in it. And a lot of things about the gameplay got kind of amped up through that back and forth process. So every card is a completely unique bird? Every card is a unique bird. In the base game, they are all from North America. And we are talking about expansions that would cover different continents, one continent at a time. Oh, that's very cool. Yeah. So you could do it geographically. Yeah. Oh, wow. That's a great idea. I'm Now I'm even more excited. And then just following this line of, of bird talk, I was looking at a, a video of the game. Uh, like I said before, I haven't had a chance to play it yet, unfortunately, although a couple of close calls. And there's like little facts and about the birds at the bottom of the card. And it seems like a lot of care put in to actually teach people about the birds and make the birds a highlight of it, which I find very neat. Was that something that was part of the design from the beginning? Or was that developed more once you signed on with Stone with Stonemeyer? The fun facts definitely came along during the process. So when I pitched it, a few categories of birds had sort of one-time power. Like all the predators mm-hmm. did things that were related to eating birds, that kind of thing. But the idea of putting those cascading powers on that you reactivate every time you're going back to that habitat came as part of the development process. And to the extent I could or had ideas for how to do it, I tried to make those powers, things that were related to things the bird actually does in real life. Some of them are just like draw another card, whatever. But <laughs> there are some that are that are like real approximations of like there's a fun story about what this bird actually does. Like the brown-headed cowbird parasitizes other birds' nests. And so in the game, when someone else lays eggs, the brown-headed cowbird gets to lay an egg. That kind of thing. Oh, nice. Um, so the fun facts kind of came out of that process of like wanting to explain why some of the birds had the powers that they did. But mm-hmm. then even not, even the birds that didn't get powers got little facts on the bottom of the cards. Because once I was doing fun. them, I had to do them for all of them. <laughs> right, right. Yeah, you want to have them be consistent. But it's also very fun. Yeah, um, yeah. It was, it was fun to figure them all out. But a mm-hmm. lot of research. Oh, I'm sure. Yeah. And then just the entire visual de- uh, design of the game looks absolutely stellar i i assume you you are excited about that because i you know oh, yeah. with any kind of game when, when you're designing it especially if you're focusing on the mechanisms being able to see 
kind of it put into a final form and one that looks so beautiful is has got to be fantastic. Yeah, yeah. I mean, the artist just knocked it out of the park. And it took three people to do all the art for the game. I mean, it was a huge undertaking. <laughs> yeah, um, I'm, I, I'm looking at it. Yeah, job. three different artists. Because I know Beth Sobel, who's a name uh, a lot of people will be familiar with, she did the box cover. Is that correct? Well, the bird on the box cover, all of the bird art. So there's one on the front and then four different ones on the four sides. Um, mm-hmm. Those are all actually illustrations from the cards. So that's oh, okay. Scissortail Flycatcher that's on the box, I actually saw the illustration for the card and was like, hey, <laughs> I think we might have our cover. Just because, I mean, partly it's just like the aspect ratio, but it's so dynamic and pretty. And um, Oh, it's a very cool looking bird, yeah. So I think Beth Unique. did the like watercolory background that's behind that. Because gotcha. the, the cards have just a plain white background, so the art really stands out. And then Beth did the art for the dice tower. Which okay. is made out of cardboard, but looks like a wooden birdhouse. Mm-hmm. And she did the player mats, which is like this beautiful landscape where she really came up with a way. So the three different habitats in the game are wetlands, grasslands, and forest. And she sort of came up with a way for it to be just one seamless landscape with those three rows superimposed on it. It's just gorgeous. And then there were two different artists who did, who split up all the bird cards. Yeah, I'm seeing, it looks like uh, on the BGG page at least, it says uh, Ana Maria Martinez Jaramillo and Natalia Rojas uh, were the other two artists. And those bird illustrations are just great. Yep. I love them. And I I really like how, like you said, it really focuses on making the the bird illustration stand out on the cards, which is, I suppose, fairly easy to do because birds are so colorful and and interesting and dynamic. But I also also may be biased because I really enjoy birds. (laughs) (laughs) Right. And some people have said that it gives it the feel of like a field guide or a a journal that you might Mm -hmm. keep of all the birds you've seen, sort of that feeling to it. Yeah. Yeah. If you're, you know very good artist i suppose certainly not any field guides i would have (laughs) (laughs) and then you got these these egg bits which i mean there are a number of jokes that people have made that certain board game bits look like candy i think these eggs are the most candy looking board game bits i have ever seen (laughs) you know what the funniest part of that is i Cadbury mini eggs were never on my radar. I don't think I've ever had one. <laughs> I just want to eat them. And then people started posting pictures of this, and I was like, oh, yeah, they do look exactly like that. But I still, I, I need to find myself a bag of Cadbury mini eggs. I'm sure this would be easy enough to, to rectify. My grandmother yeah. on Easter morning would always give us the Cadbury, the big Cadbury chocolate eggs with that weird gooey stuff in the middle. You know what? I'm oh yeah. yeah, yeah, I know. I always yeah. got one of those every Easter, but mm-hmm. I don't think I ever had the mini ones. Yeah, they definitely look like that. But I guess it's a, it's a fun substitute. You could you could have an edible wingspan <laughs> game if you want. I did do a couple of play tests where I used peanut M and M's around Halloween time. I was like, here, candy. But mostly yeah. I was just using poker chips for eggs sure. when I was playtesting. Yeah. And so then to have a copy show up and get these beautiful eggs, it's just like, it's a whole different level. Yeah. And then you mentioned the dice tower before, you know, that's, w- was that something that you wanted or is that something Jamie uh, pushed for? 
it to have included some, in the box? It was something I came up with to solve. Well, and actually, if uh, one of my playtesters had sort of suggested to solve a problem that we were having that later became, you know, the design changed and the problem that we were having became irrelevant. But I had already made a prototype dice tower and everyone loved it so much that it stayed in the game even though so the problem we were having was that I was having people rolling the dice like any dice that got used up during their turn got re-rolled for the next person and people were forgetting to do that mm. and so my playtester was like oh if you had some really fun way to roll them that no one would ever forget because they'd want to do the fun thing so I made this little project and we were like oh yeah it could be a bird feeder ah. um, mm -hmm. so I made up a little prototype and everyone loved it so now you don't re-roll the dice every turn. You only re-roll them when you have a really strong incentive to re-roll them. So you don't really... You could just have a... And I've heard that some people who don't enjoy the process of putting the dice in the dice tower are not using the tower part. They're just using the tray. You do need something to keep track of which dice have been used up and which ones mm -hmm. are available. But the fact that you get to roll them through a bird feeder is just icing on the cake. Yeah, yeah. Well, uh, it, it's certainly a good-looking game. You know, with Stonemeyer, you know you're getting a, a top-tier production. Let's scoot back a bit to the design. So you, you worked on this for a couple of years. You started with the idea of birds and trying to make an, an, an engine-building game involving them. What was the biggest challenge in that process of, of the design? Was there a big design challenge or hurdle you had to go through at some point along the way? That's a good question. I mean, once once we decided to get big with the deck, it was definitely just a lot of work to work with a deck that large and try to keep the things that I wanted balanced all balanced so that because the actions are associated with the different habitats to keep all three habitats sort of equally available in the deck. And then because of the way the food works to have the food needs of the birds be relatively even with how often they're going to come up on the dice. But also to keep that all lined up with the actual characteristics of the birds. Because all of those factors overlap different ways depending on which birds you choose to have in or out of the game. So there was just a lot of fiddling around in a spreadsheet trying to figure out the right mix literally of the the bird species and their characteristics and then the next level of like okay what powers should these birds have and what's the right mix of those powers and then just physically prototyping a deck with 170 cards is a big pain in the butt <laughs> <Right>? <laughs> oh i'm sure yeah um yeah so so it's really the iteration process once you decided to expand the cards and then trying to keep everything balance yeah. it in line with the core mechanisms yeah and i'm revisiting that challenge now that i'm starting to think about expansions oh yeah <laughs> so i'm feeling it again although with expansions you have a little bit more flexibility because you could say you know you could have everything just mixed into one big pile or you can be like okay if you want to play with this expansion you got to remove you know x cards from the base game and you plug it in yeah, I guess there's but some it's flexibility a, I don't want to have to do that because I hate having to go through 170 cards and find specific cards. Oh my yeah. God, it's hard, which I discovered dealing with, that, you know, prototyping. <laughs> I changed three cards sometimes. With three, it's easier to go through and find them. But at some po mm -hmm. point soon after that, it's easier just to print the whole freaking deck than to, 
to find the cards that you changed. Yeah, I would like to have... So the uh, the other sort of constraint that I put on myself that I didn't think about when I was doing it, but for the expansions, in the base game, there are these bonus cards that you get. I didn't talk about when I was describing the basic mechanisms, but there are these bonus cards. The, big, the beginning of the game, you get one, and it's, you know, a little goal to try for, so get so many of, uh, of birds that have a, the name of a color in their name, or birds that, that are predator birds, or whatever. There's a whole bunch of different ones. And for those, they're all scored based on the proportion of that characteristic in the deck, and I actually put that proportion on the cards, which people really enjoy, because then you know, am I going for something where I have a 50-50 chance of drawing this thing, or is it really rare, you know? Mm-hmm. This this bonus card is worth a ton of points, but it's actually really hard to achieve, those sorts of trade-offs. So now we're talking about mixing in another however many cards in the expansions, and I don't want to totally invalidate all that work I put in balancing the bonus cards. <laughs> so trying to keep a bunch of those characteristics that are in the bonus cards sort of in roughly the same proportion or as close as I can get it in the expansions is just like adding that many more things that I'm trying to balance out all at once. Yeah, that sounds like a, a massive spreadsheet it is. <laughs> puzzle. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> it's good that I don't mind working in spreadsheets. That's very, very good. <laughs> it's like, I, especially with a, a game focused with cards, that's, yeah. you know, there's not really any other way to do it. So Wingspan is your first uh, design that's been published so far, but you do have another one which won the Gen Can't button shy contest or was one of the two winners called uh tasimasi yes. uh, tell me about that game so tasimasi is an 18 card game so complete opposite of the problems we were just talking about <laughs> yep um and it was inspired by the theme of victorian flower language there was a fad in victorian england where people decided that flowers specific flower types had specific meanings so you could give someone a bouquet that had you know flowers that mean i'm jealous and i love you i i don't know whatever you would put together all these different things and and send complicated messages just through flowers in repressed victorian england so that's the theme of it and then the mechanic of it is um sort of a a twist on i split you choose so when it's your turn you draw two flower cards um and you offer them to the person next to you but you put one face up and one face down and each card has on it certain symbols or a scoring mechanic that's mostly de- based on what you have collected. So you're going to have a total of four cards at the end of the round. So you you give cards to your neighbor, one face up, one face down, and they have to decide they're going to get they're going to keep one and give one back to you, and those are going to mm-hmm. go into your little bouquets. So they have to decide do they want the sure thing of the face up card or are they going to take a risk and try and try for the face down card? And when you're deciding what to give to them, you have to decide what's the psychology of of which, if you really want one of them and not the other, how do you get the other person to make that choice? So that's sort of the dynamic of Tussie Messi. So it's super quick. You're just going around until everyone has four cards in front of them and score, and then you play a few rounds until you get to a certain point value. That's very interesting. That's such a unique in theme that I kind of knew about. Like, you know... (laughs) 
it doesn't surprise me that that was a thing because you know I, I I always heard about that like the different color of roses meant different mm-hmm. things, right? But to be able to construct like complex thoughts in a bouquet of flowers is absolutely bizarre. Yes, <laughs> which is why I just keep this running list of ideas for themes for games when I come across weird things in the world and. That had had been on my list for a little while, and so yeah, when that when they announced that contest, that's that's the one that I picked that seemed like it would lend itself to something that might come together pretty quickly. Yeah, well, now I'm just trying to figure out like the logistics, not the logistics, but like how complex could these people get with their flower arrangements? Yeah, I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> I didn't re- I didn't get that far. Like in you're only you're only limited by your budget and like. Oh right. The size of bouquet you wanted to send. I'm, I'm not surprised it, it faded out of fashion. That seems very complicated for a very simple thing. But the game, yeah, the the, the eye split you choose thing, especially if one is face down, is, sounds very interesting. I've been playing for a review, Hanami Koji. Have you played that game? I have not played that yet. It's got a similar thing going on. It's an area control, though, and... Mm-hmm you have a few different actions you're able to do and two half of them are a variation on I split you choose which for area control is very frustrating but for this one it's it's more like trying to get particular arrangements of flowers in order to score right so for example all the cards have a color right so you can have red mm-hmm. or pink or white flowers and then you might have a card that says you know score a point for every red flower in your bouquet and some of them have hearts on them that are just straight up points and different things like that very cool yeah so the print and play was available from the contest right yeah i think it's still up there it's still up there okay and then do you know when this one's going to get uh published by button shy do you have a time frame on that fingers crossed for may that's the plan as of right now Oh, so very fun. On, very nice. Kickstarter in May. It will be much prettier than my print and play prototype. <laughs> Your print I'm looking at the pictures. The print and play looks pretty nice actually. Yeah, it looks wasn't very bad. nice. I found some good clip art. Yeah, that looks good. It's certainly better than the design I submitted for that contest. Oh boy. It was it was a rush job. <laughs> <laughs> it was not very good. But uh I did it was a complete game, which was my goal. Yeah, it's a cool. good little so look- exercise. It's such a manageable size. I mean, well, I know I Corey had-, had been working on his for a long time. He did not only start it for the contest, the Seasons mm-hmm. of Rice game. Yeah. Um, but I think a lot of people do just sort of say, oh, 18 cards. I could do that in the month between when they announce the contest and when. It's due. Yeah, see, my problem is I have a lot of ideas. Yes. And so for the contest, I'm like, oh, that'll be fun. And then I immediately thought of three ideas. Yes. And then I kind of like half made three games. And then there's like a couple days left. Yeah. And I'm just like, okay, my goal is just to actually complete one of these. Yeah. And then so I picked the easiest one, which was the worst one. And then I completed <laughs> it. I definitely find that I am – I can't really work on more than one at once like i get a little obsessed with the one i am working on so i have to just pick i i yeah, don't that's... do switching back and forth well i know some people will have like five games going at once and i just i can't do it maybe that's that's probably what i have to do of course i'm trying to do it in between like reviewing games and writing and podcasting and stuff yeah. but i i do have a, a large idea bin and i look at it wistfully every once in a while <laughs> 
So with the design for Tussie Mussy, uh, did, did the kind of the connection between theme and design or in, in the, the mechanisms uh, come together pretty quickly for you? Yeah, it did. It was literally like I saw the contest get announced. I looked at my list. I think I had recently heard both Jeff Engelstein and Jamie Stegmeyer in two different podcasts say they thought I Split You Choose was an underused mechanism. And I had been playing a bunch of New York Slice with one of my friend's kids. Mm-hmm. And so I was like, I could do something with I Split You Choose and Victorian flower language because you're giving flowers. Okay, let's go. Yeah, yeah. I guess it's a pretty natural connection there. Yeah. yeah. And then you're trying to set collect and stuff. So let's rewind even further back now and get into your history with gaming. So what got you into modern board games? Mm. I grew up playing like traditional games. Like my family definitely played a lot of Scrabble and Hearts and Gin Rami and that kind of stuff. Probably more card games than anything else, really. And all through college, I played a ton of spades and then learned bridge. But I probably, I got introduced to hobby board games in 2005, which I can date because it was around the time I moved into my house, which has nothing to do with the fact that I I got into gaming. But um, I went on a retreat with all the young adults from my Unitarian church Mm -hmm. and someone had brought a whole bunch of games so we were playing Carcassonne and Ticket to Ride and Blockus I remember was there I don't remember what else it was it was like a winter ski weekend kind of thing but I'm not a big skier and I was happy to just play games all weekend (laughs) once I got started I was Mm -hmm. totally hooked oh that's great yeah that's a great introduction. Ticket to Ride, Carcassonne, and Blockus. That's that's very yeah, good. Yeah, right? How could you stop? Yeah, precisely. <laughs> so at some, you know, you, you play games when you're younger. You got introduced to s- some more modern games. At what point do you get the idea to start designing games? So it was probably 10 years after I first started playing hobby board games. And um, like I said, sitting around with some friends. Or did I say, or was this before the technical difficulties? Sitting around with some friends and talking about, like, why are none of the games we are playing about things that we actually like? Why are they all about castles? And many of us are gardeners, but, you know, very abstracted farming and, you know, science fiction stuff, which none of us are, like... We're all willing to play these games, but none of them are like the things that we're passionate about. So, yeah, I just decided I needed to make a game that I wanted to see in the world. That's wonderful. So so are you pretty dedicated now to just designing along those lines of like, okay, here's some themes I haven't seen before, but I'm interested in. Let's actually make a game about it. So far, yeah. I mean, it's just the stuff that I'm drawn naturally to. And I, mm-hmm. there has been sort of a, a little spurt in the last few years of, of games with very nature-y themes, right? Like photosynthesis and arboretum. Root even is a I was going to say, the, the, the kind of sub... Know, woodland setting. <laughs> no, the, the kind of sub-theme I'm seeing lately is like murderous woodland animals. <laughs> it's a step in the right direction. <laughs> I'm not so into the murderousness. I'm not sure if they're all murderous, but I guess woodland, an- like <laughs> anthropomorphized yes. woodland creatures. Yeah, right, right. that's that's very neat. So if if you 
have any you're willing to share, what are some other things on your list that you may or may not be working on? Or are you trying to keep those under wraps for now? I don't know what the right strategy is on that. I have a game about (laughs) monarch butterflies that's that uh, that I've been shopping, talking to a publisher about, focusing on the migration migration pattern of monarch butterflies. Oh, very nice. Yeah. I got really fascinated by this story of um, this experiment that happened in Russia where they bred foxes into domesticated dogs and it only took like 50 years or less <laughs> which is like that's so weird but it's such a cool story and that is trying to think about like how you could do stuff with passing genetic information from generation to generation and i'm not sure i've nailed it down yet but like a spin-off of not rolling and writing but writing on cards maybe We'll see. Interesting. I took it to Unpub last year and it needed work. And then I got caught up in, you know, really polishing and finishing Wingspan and kind of set it aside. I may pick that up again soon. I'd love to do something with mushrooms. I'm a big mushroom hunter. It's one of my other Oh, cool. Yes. I mean, there's there's natural intrigue in that because you don't know if it's going to murder you or not. (laughs) Or make you see things. I mean, there's there's the game tension right there. <laughs> I hadn't even thought of that. Is either. it going to nourish me, kill me, or yeah, make I'm, things spring to life before my eyes? Who I'm knows? more fascinated by all the research that's been coming out about how interconnected mushrooms and trees are under the ground. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. realize until recently that they're really trading a lot of nutrients. I just have to figure out the right mechanics to, to get that across. I love that you're looking into themes that have not been explored because like I love a wide variety of games. I like fantasy. I like sci-fi. I like all the, you know, I, I like euros about farming or walking around France or whatever. But, you know, as I play more games, I find myself really hungering for themes and settings and ideas that I haven't seen yet. And, when you look at a lot of the games that are getting, especially I feel like on Kickstarter, they're getting a lot of the cash. They're just kind of iterations on the same fantasy settings that we see all the time. So I'm very excited that you're looking into these really cool ideas. Yeah, me too. It's a lot of fun to try and take things that are truly interesting to me and and try and figure out how to translate them into games. I don't think I could work on something that didn't have an element of it that I'm like, this is just really cool. You have to know about this story with the foxes. Like, <laughs> this is amazing. Right. You know? Yeah. Because um, it takes a lot of time to do all the playtests. And there has to be a hook there that, that keeps you interested as a designer. Especially a lot of opportunity in the board game world because it's still, you know, a relatively small industry where someone can bring their first design to any publisher pretty much and pitch it and get, you know, a good hearing. And so there's so much potential there for really unique individualized perspectives on what a game can be or what a theme can be. I uh, hope so. I hope yeah. Wingspan can help bust that open a little bit because I think part of the monotony for so many years, and there have always been some games that are sort of play against type and are not about castles or science fiction but i think some publishers have been scared to take a risk and i think also a lot of game designers think that they need to have a quote-unquote mainstream mainstream for games Mm. theme for publishers to be willing to look at their 
design, which I don't think has necessarily always been true. But like when I started working on Wingspan and started playtesting with other designers, I had a couple of people say to me, like, you're going to have to retheme this for any publisher to look at it. But I just was like, that. no, this this game is about birds. I am willing to change a lot about the gameplay, but not the theme. And if you don't want to publish it, fine. But I never had a publisher say to me, we don't want a game about birds. I mean, I, I researched publishers and took it to publishers I thought might be interested. So, you know, <laughs> but I think it may be that there has been a perception among designers that isn't even true about what themes are possible. Yeah, because you can kind of understand how that idea would come forth because so many games do follow along the same few themes. But on the other hand, from a publisher's perspective, if you have a very good game that in a theme that has not been done before, that's just an opportunity to stand out in the marketplace. Right. You yeah. think. Yeah. <laughs> I never thought of it being a perception problem from the designer's point of view or from the, you know, the, the designers as a, as a group. Yeah. Huh. And it may just be those couple of random guys that don't know what they're talking about, but, but I wouldn't yeah. be surprised. I mean, given how many games you see in the same genres, I also think it's possible that, you know, we all spend so much time playing these games that are in these themes that then those, for some people, those are the themes that naturally occur to them when they're thinking of games. Right. right. Yeah. It becomes a plug and play, right? Okay. I have this thing I want to do and this, you know, theme X seems to fit well with it. Right. It, and it's probably also a matter of certain mechanisms just kind of lend themselves to themes that we've seen. And it's kind of, like you said, the easy way out. But, you know, for example, like if you want to make an economic game or a resource conversion game that has some engine building, having some kind of people going around buying and selling things theme is a natural fit for that mechanism, right? Yes. It takes a little bit more effort and more imagination to connect it to, oh, birds or nature. If you have a game about exploration and discovery, doing something like traveling you know, and finding planets in a solar system, that's kind of a straightforward yeah the mechanisms do match that and it takes a bit more work to find something more unique there right so it's probably you know a, a combination of, of different influences that are factoring into that but mm -hmm. hopefully wingspan yeah like you said will inspire something and we'll see some more unique things now that i'm thinking more about this something similar i think ha happened in video games and movies now that i think about it right because in video games you have a lot of exploration of things very early on. And then as studios got bigger and video games became more popular, you you have kind of a condensing of game types until mm -hmm. the cost to create a game drops, mm -hmm. right? And then individuals can go out and then you have the whole indie game thing, which is for a, a while now has been kind of pushing the frontiers of game design in the video game space. And then in the late 80s, early 90s, you saw the same thing when you had videotape reduce the cost of creating movies, right? You have the huge indie movie mm -hmm. thing. Mm -hmm. But with board games, it kind of, it seems like it's kind of started in that space because anyone can sit down and like write on some cards in some paper and create a prototype for gaming. And so it's just a matter of, you know, people like you making games with unique, interesting themes. Right. And then Kickstarter is one venue that people have used to kind of experiment and judge demand mm -hmm. ahead of time. So then that yeah. makes it possible for you to do your edgy thing and, and put it out there and, and see where it goes. Mm -hmm. 
So now that we've rewound and rewound uh, the timeline of this this interview in terms of, of your life, uh, let's fast forward a, a bit to the process of actually pitching the game because I this is something I don't I only know about through these discussions and I, I find the answers are a bit unique to each individual person. So you said you brought Wingspan to an un, unpub unpub event. Uh, was Stonemeyer one of the publishers you were looking at from the beginning, or was it just kind of one on, among a list of publishers you were trying to pitch it to? So Unpub, I was purely playtesting. Okay. Um, so out of that Unpub in 2015-2016, there started to be a sort of more coherent group of designers in D.C. Someone started a group called Break My Game that meets once a month at a local board game cafe and I met some other folks also that are now I'm getting together weekly with Matthew O'Malley who lives about a mile from my house and has several published games so Mm -hmm. that's been great but so anyway lots and lots of playtesting and then uh, once I decided it was ready for pitching I decided to go to Gen Con and I set up some meetings with with folks there so Stonemeyer and and two other publishers and that year at Gen Con, the way Stonemeyer set up their their pitches, I don't think they do this anymore, um, is, you know, at Gen Con, you can register for events. So, like, you might register to go learn a game or whatever. He actually created a bunch of Gen Con events that you could just sign up for one and reserve a slot with him for half an hour to pitch him a game. So I didn't have okay. to, like, send him an email and say, this is my game. Do you, are you willing to meet with me? It was just first come, first serve, grab these spots with Jamie Stegmaier and Alan Stone, which was great. I would be curious. I've never actually gone back and asked him, would you have accepted this meeting if you knew what the game was? <laughs> <laughs> but I did. Ha- there were two other publishers that I also reached out to that um, that I had meetings with that had the more traditional process. I think the the most common way that it happens if you're going to pitch to a publisher at a conference is that you need to send them an email ahead of time, give them some basic information about their game and ask, you know, when mm-hmm. do you have a time slot that we could sit down and meet for, you know, it's going to be like 15 or 30 minutes at the most. So, yeah, so I had three separate meetings over the course of that weekend, and then they all did a very similar thing, which was we're meeting with a ton of people this weekend. We're not giving anyone an answer at Gen Con, we're going to go back and go through everything, and then we'll email you. And Jamie emailed me and said, we talked about a bunch of things that, you know, recommendations that we had for your game in our meeting, and how would you address those? Felt like a little essay quiz, pop quiz. Oh, interesting. (laughs) Which I'm sure was partially like, are we on the same page? Partially just like, how do I accept feedback? Because it was a very collaborative process, the, the the development process. And I I think that give and take just around, like, what was our Gen Con feedback and what would you do about it set that tone of, like, you said you wanted more engine building. These are some ideas that I have. You said this. I forget what they all were now. Mm-hmm. Um, so I emailed him back and he said, great, go do those things and then send me a copy. So I took a couple months and I worked on all that stuff and then I sent him a copy and he said, great, let's do this. That's a very interesting process yeah. for that. Yeah. And and you said that the, the process all along the way was very collaborative. So you had a lot of input into kind of the, the visual design or was there were there a lot of gameplay or mechanical tweaks that had to be done? We did a lot with the gameplay. 
Um, okay. So really, you, you talked of, about adding more birds, but were, were there other more fundamental things? No, there was more fundamental stuff about really amping up the engine building. What I originally had designed, did not. it was not a heavy engine building. It was more sort of resource management set collection type stuff. Okay. Um, and so the first version that I sent to him after that pitch built in some engine building, and then we amped it up even from there. Okay. When I designed it, it was definitely on the light side for Stonemeyer, And it was on the heavy side for one of the other publishers that I pitched to. Like, I wasn't quite sure where it would end up weight-wise. Mm-hmm. And for Stonemeyer, they definitely, like, I think Jamie has a sense of, like, his followers are want something within a certain band of the weight spectrum. And we needed to, to amp it up a little bit to get it to fit in that range. And then how long, well, actually, I was curious about playtesting. Is that something that, does Jamie have like a group that playtests things along the way in the development process? Is a lot of that on you? How, how does that work as you're kind of changing the game to, to make sure it's remaining balanced and interesting? A lot of it was on me. So he would, he would give me feedback. So we would sort of talk back and forth a little while about design issues and that I'd run off and make a new prototype and test it and iterate. And then when I felt like I'd sort of implemented what we had talked about, I would send him either a physical copy or just, you know, the card print and play. And then he would personally play test it with I think he plays usually with his business partner, Alan Stone, and maybe some other people if they rope them in. And then we'd start that process over again, sort of iterating. And then I'd go off and play with my playtesters, and then he'd play it again. So back and forth like that. And then when we thought it was about done, he then has, you can sign up to be a Stonemeyer playtester, to be a blind playtester, where they send you an almost finished game with the rules and part of it is, you know, making sure that the rules are clear enough to be able to play the game from scratch. So we sent it out, to, I forget, like six or seven groups or like lead playtesters for that process that then each were responsible for finding playtesters in their area to play a whole bunch of games. So that was great because at a certain point, Within my local area, I had sort of gotten through most of the people that were willing to play test, right? <laughs> right, yeah, um, yeah. So it's really helpful to get a whole new set of people looking at it. Mm-hmm. And I assume that's fairly far along. You know, that's when the game is you're like, okay, the game is more yeah. or less done. Let's make sure the rule book is good and that the concepts are coming across. Exactly. And like, does anything still feel unbalanced and whatever. Anything else you wanted to, to talk about? I guess these are the two games that are that are on the way at the moment for you. Yep. That's all I have ready to announce right now. And hopefully something fun. about that Fox experiment. I'm very much looking forward to that. <laughs> I know. That Everyone sounds fascinating. Like, oh my God, that's a great story. I just have to figure out how to make it actually work. We need more games about weird genetic experiments in real life. <laughs> I'm putting it out there right now. Send me your weird real-life genetic experiments that aren't too horrific and try and make a game about it. <laughs> right? It's like it's, it's a genetic experiment that's not, like, creepy. Right. Not not evil. <laughs> like, prima facie, just horrifically yeah. evil. Yeah. Maybe some people think it's a little creepy to try and domesticate wild animals. I don't know. I mean, I don't think that many people would find it weird. <laughs> We're pretty used to dogs and cats. I mean, Exactly. 
Well, thank you so much for talking about your your designs and your, your approach here. This, this has been very, very fun. Sure. Thanks for having me. And I look forward to playing Wingspan and uh, Tussie Mussie and whatever else gets published down the road. Well, thanks for listening, everybody. That's our podcast for today. If you would like to support The Thoughtful Gamer and be able to watch and listen to these podcasts being recorded live, go to patreon.com slash thethoughtfulgamer. We appreciate greatly any help you can give to keep this going. Don't forget to rate and review the podcast on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts from. And don't forget to look at thethoughtfulgamer.com for most of what we do, reviews and discussions about various things in the board game world. Again, thank you, Elizabeth. Check out Wingspan, which will have more printings coming over on boats soon. Stonemeyer Games. And then Tussie Mussie, you said probably in May? Yes. All right, look on Buttonshy's Kickstarter there. They, they usually do like 10-day Kickstarters really brief, so get notifications enabled for that so you don't miss it. Thanks for listening, everybody. We'll talk to you all again soon. Goodbye. Goodbye.